0: Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Gillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to Omar Mualim. At any given moment, Omar is splitting his time across many diverse projects, not only in his written work, but also in filmmaking and education. His book, Inside the Inferno, A Firefighter's Story of the Brotherhood That Saved Fort McMurray, was co-authored with Damian Asher, who was a fire captain in the city during the 2016 wildfires. Last week, Omar talked to us about pitching, interviewing, and working as a writer. Today, our conversation continues from where we left off, and Omar will tell us about the process of writing his book his new project, Pandemic University, and we're gonna start the episode with some of his best writing tips.
1: Okay, so I have tips on uh, building your freelance career, just kind of taking the leap uh, into the freelance world. I know that uh, for a lot of experienced journalists, Maybe on staff at a newspaper or magazine or some other media outlet. Uh, more and more, they might be seeing this as if not a desire, uh, if not a desire, then maybe a necessity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would suggest one just uh, know, know sort of what you're what you're capable of. Don't necessarily go for your your main goal. Uh, your dream goal right away. I think that one of the best pieces of advice I ever received, it was from Dan Rubenstein, uh, who, who was an editor at Canadian Geographic at the time, is he said that you should pitch big stories to small publications and small stories to big publications. And the the point of that being that if you want to get in with uh, the New York Times, you probably don't want to start with a long-form feature for their weekend edition or something like that. Uh, you probably want to start with a much shorter piece that you can sort of sink your teeth into. Um, but also it's not really even a matter of what you're capable of at that point. They they need to know that they can trust you, that they want to work with you on something that has higher stakes. You know, all the clippings in the world might not prove that just yet. So you want to kind of get your foot in the door with something that's a little bit more Tenable. and that doesn't just go for the New York Times that goes for whatever your you know reachable goal is uh, whether it be you know The walrus or a regional publication like Western Living um, or your local newspaper and then while you're doing that of course while you're trying to pr- prove that you can write, those features. Pitch big stories to small publications, even if they're going to offer you a rate that is less than what you would hope for, you know, 50 cents a word or 25 cents a word. You know, if you don't have the receipts to show that you can be, say, a uh, long-form feature writer or that you can write a personal essay, then, well, you need to find those receipts somewhere. So pitch uh, big stories to small magazines or small publications and small stories to big publications. The second one would be to just make sure that you stay organized. We talked about my spreadsheet earlier today. Make use of those, you know, reminder buttons and snooze buttons in your email account. At least Gmail has them. You know, if you're putting out pitches there, but you're not following up in two weeks or one week, then you're basically just you're you're flushing your time and therefore your money down the toilet. I don't know why you would put in so much work on a pitch and only pitch it once. Um, And never try again, though, I guess it's easy to do that if you're not staying organized. So just make sure that you you have something like a spreadsheet for your pitches or, you know, it could be a a, doesn't have to be so sophisticated. It can be a document, but, you know, treat it, treat it with respect. Give it some some structure and and formality to it so that it's very much a, a piece of your A piece of your business, you know, almost like a a blueprint or like a business plan. It's not a bad idea to think about it. Uh, The other thing would be to, um, I don't think that it's necessarily a great idea to just dive in full time freelancing at every stage of your career, you know, even mine right now. I think it's good to have uh, to supplement your income with some sort of steady gig. For me, that is uh, teaching, and now also pandemic university. Uh, But in the past, it's been things like, well, it's been teaching again, uh, different courses at different colleges. I was a, a magazine editor on some small publications, a writer in residence at the library, a newspaper columnist, whatever it is, if you can just sort of find, you know, even $250 a month through some other gig, though hopefully it's something closer to like $1,000 $1,000 a month through that other gig. Something that covers your utilities, maybe it covers your rent and utilities. That will take a lot of pressure off your life and it'll free you up to um, pursue the kinds of stories that you want to write. Just don't let it take over your work, I think, unless you want it to. Another piece of advice would be to um, just reach out to editors and let them know that you are available. Look, it's it's always best to start to sort of, you know, introduce yourself with a pitch. Definitely the best practice. You know, if you if you have a lot of experience and you're transitioning out of uh, a newsroom, it's not a terrible thing to just, you know, email some editors you know or know of or that you have interacted with on Twitter and just let them know, hey, I'm freelancing now. I'm available. If you have any assignments that you think I would be good at, please think of me. If they reject your assignment or your your pitch, just reply with thanks for considering it. If you have any, I'll, I'll try to think up another pitch for you, but also if you have any assignments, please think of me. In pre-pandemic times, it was quite easy to get a coffee with someone and have those, you know, have those conversations. But look, in, in post-pandemic time, it's not an unusual thing to set up a Zoom with, you know, an editor and just do the exact same thing that you would do if you were having coffee together. You know, those, those personal connections help tremendously, maybe more than we'd like to give credit to. Um, I, and then I, does that bring me to my fifth tip? I think so. I think so. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think just, you know, don't sell yourself short on money, like specifically on money, um, ask for more money. If you think you deserve more money, um, and that you can earn that money. I often do whenever I think that what you know what was offered to me is insufficient. I think that we underestimate how much that kind of professionalism looks good on us. We don't think that you're being a thorn in their side by asking for more money. Yes, their budgets are limited. Well worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say no. And you have the choice to make whether you want to take the assignment or not. But if you believe you're being underpaid, then you should probably do something about it. I, I also, you know, I look, I, if I have any reputation, professional reputation is for overwriting. But uh, so my my stories tend to come in. Uh, much longer than they were assigned. But I also know as an editor that editors tend to assign a word rate or, or rather a word count below what they actually think is necessary and, and, and you know it because you know when you hit the word count and you, and you get the edits back, they're asking you know for an additional 200 words of, of you know details and explanations and that sort of stuff. And look, it makes the story better do the work. But I think that once you have sort of an accepted draft, if you've come in way over your word count, but they think that it's worth printing at that size, then I think it's okay to ask for more more money. Not necessarily asking for the exact same per word rate that was agreed upon for the original assignment, but I will ask for a couple extra hundred bucks. And more often than not, I'll get it.
0: Wow. I wish I'd heard this Fifteen years ago, (laughs) that would have helped me so much. (laughs) Those are fantastic tips. Thank you. It's um, if you don't mind, maybe I'd like to kind of shift into talking about your book that you co-authored with uh, with Damien Asher, um, called Inside the Inferno, which is the story of the Fort McMurray fires. Because that felt to me in reading that book that you two had that had a very long, quite close. Relationship as you were writing together, and probably you were, you were constantly trying to get these um, these bits and details from him, which in itself is hard. But then, of course, he suffered this major trauma in living through and fighting those those fires. So, do you mind just kind of shifting gears here yeah. and, and talking about that process? What was that like, and you know, um, how did you split up the labor, and how did it, the whole thing unfold?
1: Well, that that was um, one of the best experiences I've had, in particular, because it was so challenging. Damien is the most humble guy I've ever met from the get-go. He did not want this story to be about him. He wanted it to be about the fire department, about the, you know, the quote unquote, you know, brotherhood. It was so much easier to get him to talk about his colleagues than it was to talk about himself you know, at first I really, I really struggled with him because he he was a man of very few words. He did not, you know, he didn't really sort of understand the essence of what we were trying to do, which was basically write a a nonfiction disaster thriller. And so, you know, it took some time. It wasn't until um, he was able to read a few chapters that, it started to pour through and it was, oh man, it was amazing. And I had this really kind of discombobulated writing process because we were writing it in three months. Wow. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes I would just, I would write, I would be writing a chapter and then I would just kind of hit a dead end, realizing I don't have enough information. And I would um, get on the phone with him. And I remember when it just, it was it just started to click with him because the interview started getting longer and longer, and he was being more reflective. And he was remembering these details as he was reading the chapters. He was remembering details that I think he had forgotten. Like and look, he yes, he's he suffered a, a trauma. That's one component, but I think the bigger component is he did not sleep for seventy two hours. Yeah, right. It was yeah. a whirlwind. That whole thing is a blur. In fact, putting together that book, (laughs) the reason I was able to tell Damien's story was because I interviewed so many other people who were there who could tell Damien's story better than he could because they got some sleep. Wow. You know, because they had some, you know, had some objectivity, I guess, (laughs) a little bit of memory even. It's interesting. I, I think I I would say quite comfortably that Damien's interviews only account for probably 30 to 40% of that story and that the other 70 to 60% came from other people who were on the truck with him. Um, and of course, you know, I, it's, it's an ensemble as well. So, you know, I was telling their stories as well mm-hmm. through that, but um, it was interesting to, it was a really cool process, honestly, to interview, 10 different people, you know, <laughs> about the same event right. and get their conflicting memories, their conflicting stories, but gradually, slowly through, cor- you know, through corroboration, be able to piece together, uh, not just the timeline of events, but sort of the beats within each event. It was a really cool process. No
0: kidding. And then to do it under pressure on top of that, must yeah. have, at some level been thrilling.
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I, I love working under pressure to be honest. Like, you know, I, I need deadlines that are not so tight because then I don't <laughs> I don't think I can do the kind of narrative I know I can't do the kind of like narrative writing that I want to at least not to a certain size, but I also do need deadlines and not, not the tighter, the better, but obviously, I don't know. There's this sort of Goldilocks zone with me. (laughs) It might be an ADD thing. It probably is, but I've written a book on a 10 month deadline, uh, maybe a 12 month deadline. Uh, I've written a book (laughs) currently, um, on, Going on three years, and I've written two books on uh, ghost. Written two books on three month deadlines, hmm. and I got to say, those those three month deadlines were um, the most productive for me. Interesting. Yeah,
0: I might have to try this technique.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I look. I got a lot. Got a lot of help from a co author. Yeah, I got a lot of help from um, the editor. My editor at Simon and Schuster, Brendan May, He's no longer there, but uh, he was. You know, he just kind of got his hands in there. And, and, you know, the three of us, we, we shaped a story. It was, uh, it was a really cool process. You, you know, you don't, you can't do these things alone, obviously not on, on tight deadlines like that.
0: Yeah. So were you approached by the publisher to, to do that writing or how did that come about? They, they approached you first?
1: Yeah. It's kind of a funny story. It was, um, late 2016, which, if you recall, was uh, quaintly (laughs) believed to be the worst year on record. Oh, you're so innocent then. (laughs) We were so innocent. Yeah. (laughs) It was late 2016. And, you know, I think that just the the mix of a sad turn of events in, in world news with burnout in my own life and... You know, just a, a, a lot of like personal issues, challenges that just happened to sort of flare up over a 12 month period. It just, it really, like, it just really burnt me out. You know, it, uh, I was, I was ready for a career change and I started a sabbatical. I think it was October the first or something like that, first week of October. And, uh, about two weeks into the sabbatical, this, book project came along, this offer came along. And that was it. That was the end of my sabbatical. I got two (laughs) weeks off. And since then, I have been pretty busy writing books and still doing freelancing, working on other things. I I think in the end, it was, um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't burnt out from working a little bit of that. But I think I was just sort of um, burnt out from the the freelance grind mm. because that that was a year two thousand sixteen was a year where I was um, probably freelancing, I think probably at that point, 100% of my income. If you count, um, you know, freelancing as a, as a magazine editor for some small publications as well, then it was it was 100% of my time. And, and just, you know, just trying to keep up with all those deadlines, all those tasks. I mean, an assignment is not one assignment. An assignment is probably 50, it's 50 little assignments uh, to one goal, right? And just trying to keep up with all of that for the first time, I or, or in September of that year, for the first time, I, I actually quit on an article. You know, thankfully, it was an editor that uh, I had a good relationship with, was very understanding. I, I, I probably could have been more truthful with him. What I probably should have said is like, look, I'm I'm just completely burnt mm. out. I just I can't I can't, I can't work. And I don't want to write this article anymore, even though I pitched it, and I'm really sorry yeah i mean i was I was at that point, so I don't know sometimes you just you just need to sort of open yourself up to to new opportunities, and that gives you the the spark that you need
0: hmm and probably a, a book felt like you know even though it's this kind of imposing project, it might have also felt like a bit of a breather in a way It was that you have space to write something, yeah, that's longer and yeah more in depth.
1: You know, and the other thing about it, too, is, um, you know, this this comes back to what I was talking about with ego and, and you know, sort of being aware of your own ego and sort of how it affects you. Uh, it was really wonderful to ghostwrite a book. I mean, it's it's a co-authorship in that my name is, uh, you know, in small letters on the cover. Mm-hmm. But it's really it's Damien's story. It's Damien's book. And that experience of just not letting your ego interfere with the purpose of a project, um, and the collaboration, I found it to be very liberating. Yeah. And that was really rejuvenating. It was just very refreshing experience.
0: Okay. So now that makes me want to totally shift directions again, because I feel like part of the blessing we, or the sort of one wonderful part of being a writer that we have is that we can, you know, free ourselves from that pressure of having a byline and, and in many ways become a member of the community where that is less important whether it's through mentorship or teaching which of course you also do and then through these kind of more community based initiatives and of course that leads me to pandemic university so rather than me talk about it how about you just tell us what it's all about and how the the project emerged for
1: you yeah, sure. It's, it's been, uh, it's been a wild ride. Um, <laughs> I mean the, so pandemic university pop-up school of writing is this experiment, I guess. Um, you know, early in the pandemic, when all that work dried up for me, I was just kind of wondering how the hell I'm going to make some, some income, some short-term income, you know, CERB was not announced at that time. I think I had, uh, maybe applied for the Writers' Trust uh, Relief Fund, which was a, a beautiful initiative to, to sort of just get a little bit of money in writers' pockets during hard times. And I just, you know, that the, I think having one assignment sort of vanish like that in a year is significant. To have three gigs back-to-back back back in one week, it just, it really startled me. And I was mm-hmm. talking to other freelancers, they were experiencing the same thing or oppositely they'd um like my my friend christina frangu who is a really just an amazing medical reporter she'd never been busier obviously pandemic but she'd never been more poorly paid because the pay rates had overnight just collapsed and that freaked me out i guess i just was trying to buy some time Hmm. and you know we the world were adjusting to our new realities by virtualizing everything. And, you know, after a, a Zoom call with my freelance friends where we were griping, um, <laughs> it was my first experience with with Zoom and I just found it um, kind really impressive how easy it was to put on a presentation, share your screen, you know, just, just the various features in, involved in it. And so I um, thought, well, you know, I, I've done, I've taught classes on writing. I have done, um, innumerable seminars, workshops, and I know other writers who've done the same. A lot of my friends all have like one or two webinars in their back pocket. So, you know, why don't we package them together? Uh, I'll give it a funny name, Pandemic University. It'll, it'll, <laughs> Make people smile and and maybe you know nostalgically take us back to our better college years, uh, feeling hopeful and youthful, et cetera, <laughs> and put it up there. And uh, the idea came to me on on April first. Uh, by the end of the day, I <laughs> had a graphic designer working on a logo, a web designer, you know, a web page, and. You know, I think at the back of my mind, I thought, well, this, if nothing else, Pandemic University is a great name. So maybe I should try to register this this name or look into trademarking it. So I started making moves on that. And then I also sought out permission uh, from Universities Canada to use university in, in the name. Just because you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be Trump University. Oh yeah, <laughs> here. and and they gave and they gave me, you know, the vice president gave me their blessing, uh, yeah. and uh, I just went forward. and And by April the thirteenth, it launched. I'll be completely honest; I did not think that it was, you know, I, I didn't know for sure if it was going to be successful. I prayed that it would break even, you know, with my. Original budget of two to three thousand dollars, um, mm-hmm. which my wife approved. Um, not mm-hmm. a great time to be spending that money, so you know, God bless her for that support. But you know, I thought that hey, like if I can pay these writers, you know, 250 or 300 dollars to you know, for a few hours of their time to do something they've done several times before and make a little bit of money myself selling tickets and kind of, and hosting them. Well, you know, that's, that's great. That'll, that'll get me through the next seven weeks and uh, we'll have a vaccine and we'll all wake up from this terrible nightmare. And, you know, the real president will be Michelle Obama. Uh, (laughs) So I, you know, I, it went live and I started announcing it on Twitter with a little bit of a tweet thread and I think by the third tweet, an order came in, and it wasn't just an order for one of the classes. It was an enroll It was a, an order for the full enrollment, which was um, about one hundred and forty dollars. Which I, I, it was a last minute idea suggested to me by Jana Pruden, um, who taught one of the classes, and um, I really didn't expect that to be very popular. And what ended up happening is. I think over 250 people enrolled, another another four hundred people maybe took uh, you know, a class or two or three. And it just kind of grew into this little community. It was weird. I mean, it, it you know, I call it pan you now, but that was sort of a term that people naturally started using, pan you. And, you know, they they were, you know, they would suggest something and and I I would just do it and then uh, someone suggested an alumni group now. There's like a Facebook alumni group of, of writers. People who had like heard about it too late and regretted missing a class asked if they could sort of pay for access to like the replay of it. And so I, you know, eventually made those available and and I split the sales with the writers 50-50. And that's been like one of the most popular products on the page. Um, and then I just sold um, lifetime licenses to uh, Ryerson University on, on a couple of webcams. So now I'm like printing DVDs or sorry, webcams on, on a couple of the webinars. So now I'm like <laughs> at my local library learning how to do some video editing and, and printing DVDs and um, <laughs> getting librarians help on it. It's just a funny thing that it took on a life of its own. And it was very apparent that for as long as this can be of service to people, that I'll just keep it going. So I'm um, going on in 30, 32nd and 33rd class now, um, while also, no, 34, because there's also a six-week TV writing uh, course taught by Caitlin Fontana, who's a Canadian expat in LA. So yeah, it's it's becoming increasingly like a real university in some strange ways. Uh, yeah. After the spring semester, we had a Zoom graduation, and I somehow wrangled Peter Mansbridge to give a convocation speech, <laughs> uh, which is so awesome. Um, yeah. We had a valedictorian, you know, all of this is, you know, it delights me for many reasons. I know that I've, I, for one, it's it's just been like, really pleasant for me personally to have something uh, hopeful and optimistic during a really scary year. But I also know, you know, people have from letters I've received from people that it meant a lot to them to to be a part of this community, to have something to look forward to a couple times a week, especially in those early quarantine months of April and May, and to just kind of, you know, have a, a virtual community. You're seeing the same faces over and over again. So that's meant a lot to me. I never got a degree. I never went to a real university. You know, I got a couple of film diplomas. I went to college for one year and dropped out. I still am a little bit insecure about the fact that I don't have a formal education. And so to have created a small little educational institution that I get to call a university and I get to call myself a fake dean, <laughs> you know, and, and and teach what I love or or recruit other people to teach what I love and and pay them you know, I think a, a decent amount for the work that they do. I've been able to, to increase those fees um, a fair bit. It delights me to no end. It makes me smile just thinking about it.
0: Can you tell me about your new book that's coming out
1: next year? I'd love to. It's called Praying to the West. It is a travel memoir about mosques in the Americas. And uh, the mosques are really just sort of a placeholder for muslims in the americas telling the full alternate history of western colonization and western uh settlement through the untold experiences of muslims when we think about muslim americans or um, and i use the term americans broadly to speak about you know the the greater america you know we tend to think uh it started in the last you know half century but of course, the, the history runs back 500 years with um, enslaved Africans, up through indentured Indians in the Caribbean, uh, and so on and so forth. And in the process of of writing this, uh, of doing this travel memoir, uh, for which I traveled from Brazil up to the Arctic, sort of profiling 13 mosques along the way, in the process of it, I uncovered some incredible family history or uh, about my family. You know, I was one of those people who really kind of thought that Western Muslim history started uh, basically in 1971 when my dad immigrated here. (laughs) I did not know that I had two great-grandfathers who had come in the early 1900s, one who worked on a farm in Saskatchewan, go figure, Wow! and another one who worked in Henry Ford's um, Highlands plant in Detroit. I also learned that I had a distant cousin who was... Uh, Muhammad Laktin, he changed his name to Frank Lactine and he became the first Arab American movie star. He was a silent film actor. And, <laughs> you know, I learned that I had um, I had connections to the, the prairie peddlers who established the first mosque in this country. So it was a project of personal discovery. You know, at the same time, I, I sort of uh, have been working through a lot of my own hang-ups with, uh, religion and my, uh, cultural upbringing through this book as well. It's been, you know, it's been quite a process, kind of a a bit of a slow process too. It's, it's, it's not like any work that I've done before. And, uh, I wish I, someone was, was (laughs) co-authoring (laughs) <laughs> with me. I could, Sometimes I feel like I could use a ghostwriter myself. <laughs> but uh, it's really been one, you know, professionally the most incredible experience I've ever had, just because I've, I've I've never been exposed to more experiences, more learning about more hardship. But I think most importantly, like, just meeting so many inspiring people. It's not a secret that if not the, uh, the majority, close to the majority of refugees today are Uh, Muslim people, you know, whether they're observant or not, but, you know, they come from sort of that Muslim majority nations. And so just naturally through the process of telling the story, I met, you know, a lot of people who've been through some harrowing experiences, taken some incredible risks to be on this side of the world for, you know, for a sense of peace and security and, and just to live up to their own aspirations as we all want to do. And it's been humbling. I can't wait to tell their stories. I can't wait to to share it with the world. Yeah, that's great. I
0: can't wait to read it myself. Do you have a, a projected release date?
1: Uh, fall 2021.
0: It was a real pleasure to talk to you and get to know you a bit, even in these, you know, different conditions. Uh, I I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: I did, too. It was uh, it was nice to, to have a conversation with someone today <laughs> that was not, <laughs> you know, not family, not uh, a three-year-old, um, not a crying baby, not a whining cat.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yes, we will. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash mfa. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Omar Muellum for taking the time to talk with us. His latest book, Inside the Inferno: A Firefighter's Story of the Brotherhood That Saved Fort McMurray is available from Simon and Schuster. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editors are Kirsten Depina and Samantha Hepperley. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.